Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. Memories give us a sense of who we are, but how can we be sure that what we remember is what really happened? And why is it that some unwanted memories just won't go away? This month, Vin Walsh introduces Julia Shaw and Jennifer Wilde in a fascinating exploration of memory and the ways that it can prove unruly. Uh, thank you. Good evening, and thanks for coming out on a, on a Tuesday night. Um, before we get into the science, I'd just like to get a sense of what kind of audience we've got here. So if you can all close your eyes, just for one second, and, uh, because I don't want you to see what everybody else is voting. Close your eyes, and I can see you. Um, and I want you to put your hand up if you think you've got a rather good memory, or a particularly good memory. Oh, we are up ourselves. <laughs> And put your, hand, put your hands down. Um, that, that was very unattractive to see how highly rated you think you are. Um, but even less attractive is false modesty. Who, keep your eyes closed, who believes that they've got a less than average memory here? Oh, I could tell with the way you put your hands up, you didn't mean that. That's, that's disgusting. Um, well, I, uh, when Martin asked me to organize an evening on, on memory, I couldn't think of anything easier. Um, uh, for two reasons. One is a friend of mine who will remain nameless. Well, nameless is Shane O'Mara, professor of <laughs> professor of, of neuroscience in Trinity College London, uh, at Trinity College Dublin, uh, who ridiculed me for for 25 years about my poor memory, and and I believed him. I really believed that I had a poor memory, and in in, in accepting that, I I attributed to him a superior memory. And what I've come to realise in the past few years is that yes, I have got a terrible memory. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm at peace with that, but so has he, and so have, <laughs> and, and, and it's now been scientifically proven. Um, I can't wait for him to get the audio of this. Um, uh, and so have, so have you. So that's the, the first, first reason that I, I, I was so ready to do this this evening. And the second is, uh, it's memories very personal to all of us. We get affronted when, when people challenge our memories. But over the past few years, I've watched my own parents um, suffer the loss of their memories with, with Alzheimer's disease. And you can see how much memory becomes part of, of, of who we are. Um, so I put together, put together two experts who both impressed me massively, uh, both from Canada, which has a, a, strangely has a, a history in neuroscience of, of world-class memory research and, uh, and Nobel Prizes. Um, if you're welcome to, them to the stage, please. Uh, Julia Shaw from University College London. I, I read Julia's book, The Memory Illusion, um, which if you buy later on, you can talk to her after the talk. So Jennifer and I, we, we're anti-capitalists. You can talk to us for nothing. We have nothing material <laughs> to offer you. Um, uh, but I, I read the book, and it's, in popular terms, I, I think it's a game-changing book. It really is a, a fantastic read. Um, so Julie will, 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 will take away your confidence in, in your memory later on. And the second speaker I, I met at Cheltenham Science Festival when she did the academically inconceivable. She gave a whole talk without PowerPoint. And I thought, <laughs> that's, that's my kind of scientist. We have a philosophical discussion in science about whether knowledge can exist in the absence of PowerPoint. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but Jennifer has proved it. So if you welcome Jennifer Wilde to the stage from Oxford <laughs> University.
So Julie's going to uh, 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 kick us off with 15 to 20 minutes about, about memory. I think it's PowerPoint free as well, isn't it? It is. Yes. How good is this? Um, and, and then we'll, we might have time, some time for questions, or we might, um, uh, if you've got a burning question, then you can ask that. Otherwise, we'll move straight on to Julia for, uh, uh, Jennifer for another 15, 20 minutes. Julia? Um, I study when we remember things that never actually happened. And in particular, recently, uh, have you guys seen the new Blade Runner? The science fiction often plays with this idea of what happens if we can't tell the difference between real memories and false memories. If how do we know something actually happened? In the new Blade Runner, it's a question not just of whether this actually happened, this thing I, that I remember, but whether it's my memory. Now, this is a question that I think is fascinating because the question is, it's so, so uh, it, just, it goes in so many different directions. It touches on identity, it touches on reality, it touches on things like philosophy and who am I if I can't trust my memories? Who am I if some of my memories might be wrong? And on the topic of stolen memories, while in science fiction, there, in, in this case, there's a person who puts in what are called memory implants. Now you could argue that scientists are already doing this. We are already implanting memories in people's brains to study how easy it is and in which circumstances we can give you a fictional past. But we also have personal experiences. So when you study false memories and when you write books on things that your family, eventually your family realizes what you actually do, which when you're a scientist is not always that easy. My grandmother for a long time doing a PhD uh, while well, I was studying, uh, did a Bachelor of Arts first. So what was I studying? Fine art, of course. Uh, it took a while to get the family on board, but they read the book and then up came this story. My aunt tells this story about when she was in Basel, which is in Switzerland, visiting my, 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 my other aunt. Uh, and she went down into a parking garage after a nice day of sightseeing. And she gets into the back seat of the car. My mom's in the front seat, my dad's in the driver's seat. And she starts to drive out of this garage. Now, in front of them, there's this man walking back and forth, and he's talking to himself. And my mom gets out of the car, because he won't get out of the way, and says, please, sir, can you, can you get out of the way? And instead of what a healthy person would do and, and maybe step aside, he runs at my mother, pushes her in the car, and starts punching her. Now, my dad's response to this is to drive away quickly. The perpetrator falls away. My mom's OK, but of course, she's really shaken. Now, when you hear my aunt tell the story, you can practically relive it with her. You can feel the emotion, the frustration, the sadness. You can practically smell what this guy smelt like. Uh, the only problem is that she wasn't actually there. My aunt was never in Basel. She wasn't even in the right country at the time. But my aunt, to this day, insists that she was in the backseat of that car. Why? Probably because my mom told this story with so much complexity and emotion that my aunt could very easily picture what it would have been like to be there. And now, as we can hold evidence in her face and say, there's no way you could have been there. To her, this fictional past that she's accepted as real is stronger than any evidence we can give her. So this is something that we see when we study criminal psychology, is we see not just that these, these memories can come from loved ones, that they can come from scientists, they can maybe come from an eager police officer who's asking you leading questions, getting you to picture how things could have been. If you've seen Making a Murderer or you've seen the confession tapes or one of the many shows that are on right now that talk about this idea of police officers who might be able to lead people into paths where they falsely confess to crimes they didn't commit. We see the extreme version of what happened to my aunt. We see that we can 
have these complex false memories of crime. And that's what I study in the lab. So when I bring people in, I intentionally get them to think that they committed crimes that never actually happened. Now, <laughs> some of you already are uncomfortable in my presence. I'm sensing this. Uh, I'm a criminal psychologist. So as a criminal psychologist, in the courtroom, people will dissect moments of people's lives, important moments where a crime was committed, like in the case of my aunt. What did the person look like? What happened? How long did it take? How many punches were there? Those kinds of questions are normal questions. The problem is that memory doesn't work to the level of detail that courts need. You can have, I've been an expert at a trial where two weeks were spent discussing 10 seconds. There is no way that you could get two weeks worth of material from 10 seconds in terms of actual memory fragments. But you can have different versions, you can have different pieces of evidence, you can have different accounts of what happened. And so when you line up 10 witnesses or you line up five people who went to a meeting, this was actually about a meeting, uh, this wasn't a, a criminal case, this was a civil case, where it was all about what happened in these 10 seconds of meeting. And after this meeting, when fraud was committed, was that because we talked about it? Was that because he told me to do that? Or did the person decide for himself that this is what he wanted to do? Memories matter. Nuances of memories matter. But our brains are really bad at remembering the fine-grained details of what happens in our lives. Now, in the, in, the, in the research that I do, I get people to come into the lab to, under false pretenses. So it's not just me, there are other people who do this kind of research. Uh, it is ethically approved. I'm, I, I do, in fact, have an ethics board at, the, at my university. Uh, it takes years to get these things approved to make sure it's all scripted, it's all videotaped, there's a debrief protocol at the end. Um, but in this, in this protocol, which I've replicated, which other people have, have so I'm not, I have replicated this, study I'm talking about, but I have replicated other people's similar studies. Um, and in, these, in this research, what happens is people come in thinking they're there for an emotional memory study. Now, before they've come in, they know that I've contacted people who they trust. Now, who do we trust? That's a big question. But we might trust, if we're undergraduate university students, we might trust our parents. At the very least, we might trust that our parents remember certain details about emotional events that happened to us when we were teenagers. So they know that I've contacted their parents ahead of time, asking for things like where they lived, emotional memories, and they don't know this, but I've screened out to make sure they haven't experienced any of the events that I want to implant. Now they come into the study knowing this, but not knowing exactly what the study's about. I say, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about two memories. As you know, I contacted your parents. Yes, they go, good. Now, the first memory is, and I introduce a real memory, a memory that the parents reported happened between the ages of 11 and 14. Now, they, I then say, okay, tell me everything you can remember about the event. And they go on for about 15, 20 minutes, telling me in as much detail as I can extract what happened during a move, when they, when they learned that they had to move and it was very emotional. When uh, a, a pet died, that was a, a couple of people had a pet die. What happened when you learned that your pet died? They were negative emotional events, intentionally so. Um, and then I said, okay, the other event which your parents reported happening was an incident where you were in contact with the police. Now, the correct response to this, and also if you find yourself in this situation, the correct response is what? <laughs> um, don't immediately start what's called confabulating. Don't immediately start telling me, oh yeah, maybe it was this. No. Um, but then I go, they go, some of them appropriately said, I don't know what you're talking about, which is good because it didn't happen. But 
It doesn't take very much to shake your confidence, or their confidence in this case. Because at this point, they say, no, 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 no. Would you like a moment? I'm a, I'm a very empathetic researcher. <laughs> Would you like a moment? Sometimes, I don't like to call it repression, but sometimes, I actually said that, uh, we push things out of our minds. Now, we'll talk about trauma later. Uh, but I was using words that they're familiar with. I was using language that was kind of scientific. I, in fact, I had a bookshelf. Filled. I went to the library on the, first, the day before the study started, and I got all the books I could find on lost childhood memories, uncovering childhood memories, and I put them all on my bookshelf so that when these people looked around, they said, oh yeah, that's what she does. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I said, great, okay, so that, that's okay. Would you like to try this imagination exercise? Again, very empathetic. And of course, everybody says yes. Now, that's an illusion of choice, essentially, because if, if I say, no, no, I have all this information from your parents, I have a very detailed account, all you have to do is uncover it, people want to know. And so everybody said yes. And I said, great, let's try this. Close your eyes. It's scripted. I do this whole thing where I pull out a sheet of paper showing just how scripted it is. I just need to fill this in. Uh, and I said, great, close your eyes and picture yourself at the age of 14. You're in, and I've already, I already have the name of the hometown where this person lived at the time. I insert it. You're in London. You're with, insert name of best friend, Jamie. What does it look like to be there? What's the weather like? What does it feel like? Blah, 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 blah. I talk about, I walk them through this imagination exercise, which is called context reinstatement, which is a real imagination exercise, which is sometimes used in therapy and can be applied appropriately. But in this situation, when I know that this didn't happen, what starts to happen is you start to see people who have their eyes closed as I'm grinning there. Initially, I didn't think this was going to work. So initially, I'm just sitting there grinning. Oh, my God, it's working. Um, <laughs> but eyes closed, so it was okay. And so then I that you can just see. You can see that with some of them, they're starting to buy into this idea that maybe this did happen. And the first detail I ever got, blue sky. Now, that sounds like nothing. But when said with the kind of confidence that this person said it with, Again, it indicated she was buying into the idea that she was picturing the event that happened. And so after three interviews, the way that I classified it, 70% of my participants um, had full false memories of committing crimes that they didn't commit. They, the crimes, in case you're wondering, were assault, assault with a weapon, or theft. Now, Canada, a weapon, any object you use to hurt another person, right? A rock. Not a, not a gun, right? We did, guns, come on. Um, so it was assault with a weapon, so attacking someone with a weapon, starting a fight, it had to be initiated by the participant themselves, uh, or a theft, and all of them with police contact, and allegedly the police had called their parents, which is how they found out. Now, after 70% of them at the end were telling me what, what it felt like to be there, what it looked like to be there, like my aunt, right? They're telling me these what are called multi-sensory details of something that I know didn't happen. Now, there's a debriefing process where, I, of course, make sure, did you talk to your parents? They actually signed a fake non-disclosure agreement because people sometimes ask me, how do you know they didn't just talk to their parents? Why weren't they lying to you? Maybe they were lying to you. Uh, some of them said afterwards, I just made it up. Uh, not very many, though, because I think a lot of people did trust the situation. They trusted their parents. And in the debriefing, I made sure that that was all cleared and also that I explained how it worked. So what studies like this show is just how easy it is to weave narratives out of what I would refer to as sort of pieces of memories. 
So people often ask me, so why can I misremember people's names? Why do I misremember X, Y, or Z? There's all kinds of things we misremember on a daily basis. I'm, I'm really bad at names. We also misremember where we learned information. Ah, didn't you say such and such? No, that was, some, that was somebody else, right? We, we forget where things, where we learn things. We forget the information itself. We forget names. We forget all kinds of things, and we misremember them. We also put people in and out of memories. So this thing with my aunt. I find it fascinating how often people will talk about, oh, you were there the other night, weren't you? Mm, were you? Or parents putting in front of their kids, or now grown-up kids, uh, putting in front of them photos and saying, oh, look how cute you were when you were one year old. Problem? If you start to think that you can remember that experience, you're probably just hijacking the memory of the person who's talking to you and picturing what it could have been like. So these things happen all the time. They're generally what I call patchworks of real pieces of memories. So it's, in my case, in the studies that I do, it's a real person, a real place, a real emotion, and all you've done is string things together in a way that never happened. And when I was writing my book, one thing that became really apparent is not just all the different contexts within which these things can happen, including things like social media and fake news, having the same kind of ability to hijack what you think actually happened. Remember those big crowds? Well, maybe if you give it enough imagination, you can. Um, I'm not making any qualitative judgment on that, but um, if, you, if you say something often enough, if you hear something often enough, it can become your reality. And in, and in writing the book, the, the thing that I think brought it all together for me in some way wasn't just this questioning of everything, even perhaps your most important memories, because just because you say something with a lot of confidence, a lot of detail, and a lot of vividness doesn't necessarily mean it happened, which I think can induce, I know can induce an existential crisis. Because who am I if I'm not my memories? But it also shows us that these memories are these wonderful flexible networks, and this is something you're probably going to talk about as well, is that memories are networks that are across the brain. The reason you can have this wonderful sensation of reliving something, even something that didn't actually happen, is because you're activating these different parts of the brain. Memories don't live in just one spot. They live across the brain. And these networks, if you cut bits between two pieces of information, you forget. If you attach things that were never originally attached, you misremember. And that's Pretty much the basics, the very basics, I'm sure you disagree, uh, of, of memory. Um, and, and when we look at it that way, what we also see is that the same mechanism that's responsible for false memories is the mechanism that's responsible for creativity and problem solving and intelligence. Because to be human, what you need is a flexible brain. You need a brain that can take pieces of information, pieces of memories that you have, and connect them in ways that never originally happened. So I want to leave you with the questioning of your memories, thinking about whether some of your memories are just an illusion. And if you want to learn more, there will be, of course, questions. There will be. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lucifer. Um, <laughs> Uh, she says she's empathetic. I'm actually standing up because I, I want to make eye contact with people and see who you really are. The, the devil doesn't care. Um, again, close your eyes, and, and I want to see a show of hands. Who, despite what Julia has just said, believes they can remember uh, events before they were, say, three years old? Should we go for three years old? Close your eyes and tell me. 
I always remember A.S. Byatt saying that she remembers being there in a pram when she was one year old, thinking, I'm here. And I thought, my arse, you're here. Uh, uh, keep your hands up. So, okay. Well, you can take... Uh, you, you too. Oh, this is going to be fun. <laughs> okay, so you can put your hands down and open your eyes. Um, we've heard about how, uh, how malleable and unreliable memories are, but sometimes... They are too sticky. I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I walk down the streets, uh, down the street, and and I don't find myself stopping in my tracks at some happy memory. It's some awful, embarrassing memory that makes my blood run cold, and I just hope that everybody who was there has now died. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and when they do, and somebody dies, you think, well, that's that one gone. There's just three of them left. Um, but memory can be too sticky sometimes, and that's one of the problems, and that's what Jennifer's going to talk to us about now, Jennifer. Yes, and I am reverting Perfect. to slides, Ben, so um, I'll just take you through a few. But I'd like to kick off by asking if you've ever suffered a setback, like freezing during an important talk, like an important talk on memory, for example, or suffered a setback where you've said something really embarrassing during a meeting, or worse, you've suffered a trauma like the death of a loved one. And if you suffered any of these events, you'll know firsthand that the, the memories you most want to forget are the ones that come back most often. And for many um, people, as Julia has alluded to, for many, the, the memories that plague them um, may not have actually happened in the way that they originally feared, or what they remember may actually be different to what actually happened. For most people, the memories that plague them fade over time. But for the unfortunate few, they go on to suffer an extreme stress response in response to very traumatic memories, and that is post-traumatic stress disorder. So post-traumatic stress disorder is a disorder of memory in my mind. It's actually classified as a stress disorder. It used to be an anxiety problem, but it is a stress disorder. But in my mind, it's a disorder of memory. And the first cluster of symptoms are memory working in overdrive. So it's the unwanted horrific memories that plague people that come back, the flashbacks. When people have flashbacks, it actually feels like the trauma is happening all over again. Um, nightmares, unwanted feelings that come back with reminders. And these memory symptoms drive the next set of symptoms, which are the avoidance symptoms. So having unwanted, horrific memories drives people to avoid reminders, understandably. So they avoid people, places, situations, thoughts and feelings about the trauma in order to not have to deal with it and not have to live with the terror of what they experienced. And so the memory symptoms drive the avoidance symptoms, and they also drive a third set of symptoms, which are the negative thoughts and feelings um, that people have. And they feel very differently, having had these unwanted memories and the horrific experiences. They feel very negative, uh, sometimes permanently damaged or changed because of what they've experienced. And finally, memory working in overdrive affects our physiology. It's like our body's in been injected with adrenaline. We're hyper-alert, over-aroused, can't concentrate, can't sleep, on edge, irritable. So the, the memory is influencing our physiological response, our body, making us re really... Um, tense and not feeling very safe. So PTSD is very much a memory in overdrive. The memory symptoms drives all clusters of symptoms. So if we can prevent unwanted memories from developing in the first place, then we can prevent PTSD from developing. And that's what I'm investigating in my lab. And um, we first had to think about why the memories are so overactive in PTSD, why they're so easily triggered by everyday objects in everyday life. And to just um, take you through a whistle-stop tour of um, um, 
learning theory, which helps to explain why these memories become so easily triggered, I'd like, you to, I'd like to introduce you to my pet, Zach. And when I got Zach, he's very cute. When I got Zach, um, he used to get really excited when I feed him. And he still gets very excited when I feed him. So when I give him cat biscuits, he has a particular response, and he licks his lips. He has a lot of lip licking going on. Um, and Zach soon learned that when my alarm clock goes off in the morning, he's going to get fed. And he, again, licks his lips. And over time, Zach learned that just having the alarm clock go off in the morning is, is enough to make him lick his lips because he knows he's about to get fed. And so this kind of learning is not harmful for Zach. He's learned to pair an alarm clock with um, getting food. It's a useful and adaptive form of learning. But when it comes to trauma, this kind of learning isn't necessarily helpful. So when we go through trauma, the body is um, flooded with adrenaline. Our brain is processing at a super fast speed. Um, and we're encoding. The brain moves into a data-driven type of processing, encoding all sorts of sensory information. We over-encode sounds and smells and sights. So if somebody's had a car accident, and a, a bright headlight was there at the time of the accident. It was a warning sign that the accident was about to happen. It will get over-encoded. That bright light and the sounds associated with the accident will be over-encoded. And then what will happen, um, as what happens with PTSD, is that these stimuli or these, um, these cues um, are very easily triggered in the environment because they're slightly matching the original trauma. They're not a close match, but they're, they're a slight match. And so what we do when I, when I put my clinician hat on and I'm working with people to overcome their post-traumatic stress and working with these horrible memories, um, I, I practiced a trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, and it's a type of therapy that is really helping to break the link between now and then. So now, the present, what's going on today and the past. And so what I want to do, and it's a really tough therapy, is I actually want to activate that trauma memory. Like a detective, I'm going out and I'm finding all of the triggers that are going to bring back the memory of the trauma so that we can work together and break the link to the past. And I would work with patients and with this trigger in my office, say it's a white lamp because it reminds them of a headlight of the car that hit them. I would ask my patients to focus on how is this trigger different to the trauma? How is it different to what happened in the past? And then we'd want to get lots of triggers and get them to focus on what's different now. And we call this technique then versus now. And the other technique that uh, leads to recovery in trauma-focused uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is a technique that really touches on Julia's work. And it's a technique where we change somebody's memory. So when somebody comes to treatment for me, the memory for their trauma is very different to the memory I send them away with at the end of therapy. So it's like they're sitting in my room, in my office, and we take the trauma memory out of their head and we start to add a lot of new information, and we update it. And maybe during the trauma, they thought they were going to die, and now they know they didn't die. So this is a piece of useful information we'll put into the memory and put back in their head. Maybe they've had a trauma, they've had a car accident where a loved one did die. Um, and so we would want to put information into that trauma memory that that person's no longer suffering. And often when people die, our natural response is we, we wish we could have protected them and prevent them from suffering. So we'd want to put back in the memory everything they did that was helpful at the time of the trauma, and maybe everything they did that was helpful the entire life of the loved one who died. And all of this new information that wasn't there at the time of the trauma gets added to the trauma memory and put back in this person's head. And 
how they relive the trauma afterwards is very different. And it includes so much more useful information than the trauma memory that brought them to treatment. And so this technique is called updating. So the core techniques are updating and then versus now. And are these important? Well, they're particularly important for a group of people who dedicate their lives to supporting public health and safety, and these are emergency workers. Now, these are a core group of people we know are going to be exposed to trauma. So we have a chance to give them some training to prevent them from developing unwanted memories and to prevent them from developing post-traumatic stress disorder. As PTSD destroys lives, it's impossible to concentrate and to work when you're being flooded with unwanted memories. So we turned to the lab. And the first study that we did, and also I just want to remind you and let you know that this did get full ethical approval. Unbelievably, all of these studies that I'm talking about got full ethical approval. And we also had to debrief people after a follow-up a few months later. So not, not immediately. <laughs> um, so what we did was um, we showed people real-life footage of fatal car crashes. And they're really hard to watch. And we trained one group of people to think and why. Why did these events happen? What does it mean about the world? What, why are these people suffering? And we trained another group of people to think and house. How is this situation going to be resolved? How is the situation unfolding? How are the emergency workers going to respond? And with these two groups of um, this training, they, we then had people watch the, the trauma films, thinking in the, the style that they had been trained to think in. And what we found was that if they'd been trained to think in this abstract, ruminative, way, they were much more likely to develop unwanted memories and much more likely to develop post-traumatic stress after. But if they'd been trained to think in a concrete, specific, a practical kind of way, they were much less likely to develop unwanted memories and much less likely to develop PTSD. So what does this tell us? It gives us really useful information because we now know that if somebody's going to be exposed to trauma, we can train them to think in a particular way, and that's going to lead to fewer unwanted memories after and less likelihood of developing post-traumatic stress. So the next technique that we looked at is one that I've touched on that we use in our treatments for PTSD, and this is then versus now. So what we did was train people to, when they have an unwanted memory, to look at how the trigger that brought the memory to mind is very different to the past event. So now is very different to then, and everything about this trigger. So it's a lamp, it's not a car headlight, for example. And then we were really interested, well, the natural response when we have a trauma is to try really hard to push the memory out of our head. So we thought, well, we'll, we'll train another group of people to suppress their memories and work really hard to push them out of their head. And then with the third group of people, we thought, we'll just let them do whatever they want when the memory comes to mind. So then we brought out the horrific real-life footage of fatal car crashes, and we had our three groups of people watch them. And then they went off and they went home and they practiced their technique of what to do when unwanted memory came to mind. And what we found was if they had been trained to think in then versus now and to look at differences between the trigger and what's triggered the, the memory today compared to the trauma film, they were much less likely to go on to develop further trauma memories or unwanted memories of the trauma. If they pushed them out of their mind, they had the most unwanted memories and the higher likelihood of developing post-traumatic stress than if they did what they want. Um, or if they did then versus now. So what this tells us, if we know our emergency workers are going to be exposed to trauma, we can train them to practice then versus now when they have unwanted memories afterwards. And then finally, in the final study, um, again, we, we showed people, we showed three groups of people horrific, fatal car crashes. And we told them, you're going to watch some very serious car crashes. 
And after they had watched the films, we got one group of people and we updated the information that we had given them. We said, yes, they were fatal and the people died that you saw, but they're no longer suffering. So that was the new piece of information. Then with the other group, and then they went on to watch the trauma films again, knowing that new information. And then with the other group, we told them, you're the same information, you're gonna watch more trauma films um, of very serious car crashes. And then the third group, they had seen the trauma films, they knew they, they, um, the people were in serious car crashes, and then we thought, well, we, we're not gonna re-traumatize them. We'll let these group of people um, watch videos of um, people driving in Scotland. Um, we thought that was kind of like quite neutral and not, not very interesting. Um, sorry to all the Scottish people. <laughs> um, Scotland is actually very beautiful. Um, and so what we found was that the, the people who had learned to update the memory with this new information were much less likely to develop unwanted memories, much less likely to develop post-traumatic stress. So what does this tell us? It tells us is after an unpleasant event or after a traumatic memory, if we can update it with useful information, we're much less likely to develop unwanted memories and post-traumatic stress disorder. So what does that tell us about dealing with our own unwanted memories in our lives as stressful or embarrassing or traumatic memories? Well, focusing on how to move forwards is far more helpful than focusing on why an event happened. And as soon as possible after an unpleasant event, if we can update it, if we can add some useful information to that event, maybe about what we did that was helpful, we'll be less likely to develop unwanted memories that persist over time. And if we can look at now and how now is different to then, then we'll be less likely to be sucked into the past and less likely to be taken back to unpleasant memories. Really looking at how now the trigger that triggered my memory is different to what actually happened in the past. And what I'm really struck with when I, when I take a step back and I look at these strategies is that they actually all work with attention. So when you're focusing on how to move forward and you're not focusing on why something happened, when you're focusing on adding some useful information to an unpleasant event, or you're focusing on how now is different to the past, your attention is really absorbed in the task at hand and how to move forwards and what's different today than the past. So what all of this research in which we've really made people suffer has shown us is that it absolutely matters what you focus on. And whilst there will be lots of reminders in our everyday life that will bring back unpleasant memories and bring back traumatic memories from the past, like a detective, we can learn to spot the differences between the past and the present, and we can learn to break that link. We can practice them versus now. We can focus on how to move forwards, and we can update our memories with something useful um, to make them less powerful and less likely to take over our lives and to free us from the stress and the embarrassing moments and the traumatic moments from our life. And on that note, I'm going to stop there so we can have some nice and good discussions. Thank you. Thank you very much. We'll come to questions very soon. Um, we've, we've, we've had the two, two particular sides of, of memory. What I don't want to do is, is limit you to 
to only what you've heard and, and, and have questions only on what the two speakers have said. There will be lots of questions on that, but some of the other things that have occurred to me while we've been talking are uh, memory and age, the different kinds of memories. We've talked about a particular kind of memory, which we call episodic memories. There's memory for stuff as well. Um, 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 what might be the most common neurotransmitter in, in the brain, for example, would be memory for stuff rather than memory for, for, for events. Uh, we can talk about that. There's memory for skills, um, the kinds of memory that allows you to ride a bike after, uh, after so long. Um, and memory and emotions. I think there's a, a lot of room for, for questions on memory and emotions. Memory and sleep. Uh, if you're interested in other animals, you don't have to just ask about Zach. Um, you, can, you can ask about memory and, and other animals. Uh, so I think we've got lots to go at. Um, but you had a question for, for Jennifer immediately, did you? Let's go. We've got mic roving microphones. And I, I will hover... Um, because then I, I won't miss people who are, who are in the back. I can see you now. Uh, <clears throat> actually, two questions. Uh, the first is, in, in the first study, you didn't, it seemed like you just had the how and the why, but there wasn't a let them do it however they wanted. So I'm wondering, was it the how, was it the why, or was there another condition that, um, where you know which one was driving the effect? And then the second question is, I wonder if you could clarify the now manipulation. I'm having a hard time getting my head around, don't worry, they're no longer suffering because they're dead. Uh, yeah, how, sure. how, how reassuring, why that really is so helpful for them. Yeah, yeah, sure. So obviously I, I couldn't go into a huge amount of detail about the kind of treatments that, uh, the, the detail of the treatment that helps people recover from traumatic bereavement. But going back to your first question, that study didn't have a third condition. It would have been useful, but we just had the two, so we trained people um, to think in whys as they were watching trauma films. And, and then the other group was trained to think in the how kind of, the more concrete and specific kind of way. But we didn't have a third condition. And that might have been quite interesting to see what people naturally do when they, when they watch these kind of trauma films. So do you think it was that the why was making them worse or the how was making them better? This, yes, that's a good question. I think... Um, generally, a ruminative abstract method of thinking actually makes people much worse. I suspect that that was what was happening. But I also think that thinking in how is quite helpful because it keeps you very focused on what's going on without paying much attention to how you're feeling and the kind of thoughts that might be driving those unpleasant feelings. Um, and your second question was uh, really working with traumatic bereavement. It's not... Um, so. So treatment for post-traumatic stress in the way that I work, um, we could work with somebody quite quickly if it's um, a trauma like an accident and maybe the, the fear was that I was going to die and, I, and actually I didn't die, but I just haven't really linked that up, that information to my trauma memory. With something like traumatic bereavement, it's a longer process, but still we would aim to complete the treatment within 12 weeks. And much later in treatment, we would be looking at, well, let's... The meaning of, you know, you know, and it sounds crazy when you're working with somebody, but we need to know what's the worst thing about this person dying for you. We need to really uncover that meaning. We also need to uncover the meaning. What does this person mean to you? And we need to find ways to bring that meaning back into somebody's life. Um, and we need to transform images. So often with traumatic bereavement, people are left um, with the image, um, and this touches on Julia's work, of what they think happened at the time, but often they weren't there. So I've worked with many people, um, sadly, who have lost their children in horrible conditions, but they weren't actually there, unfortunately. Their, their children didn't die with them. 
and they didn't see what happened, but they have horrific images, and that's all they can think about when they remember their children are the images that they created in their mind. So we have to work to transform those images, and we have to work with um, the meaning. And, and, and I gave an example. Um, when a child dies, uh, oft, a common meaning is, I didn't do enough to save them. I didn't protect them. I'm a bad mom. So that's what we would be working with. So we'd want to think about... Let's think about what you did do, and let's think about what you did the entire life of this child that was helpful, that showed that you cherished and cared for them. And then we would bring that kind of information, have them recall it, and link it to the trauma memory. So it's a much different memory than when they came to treatment. And having that useful information attached to the trauma memory helps it to be less painful for them over time. Thank you. Given that we outsource most of our memories now to technology, um, how is that affecting, in general, uh, memory? How is that also reinforcing a lack of false memory? Because if you can't remember what you did, you can look on Facebook or in your calendar, and you know what you were doing. So how is technology affecting uh, real memory and false memory? Can we start? I can start. Um, the answer is we don't know. <laughs> what we do know is that, you're right, we are outsourcing memory. There is some research which shows that what we do when we know... So research that looks at um, knowing you can access information later. So, for example, you're given a task and you are either asked just to remember something or you're asked to remember something, but it's also stored here. Or option three, remember this fact... But I also want you to sort them into these five folders on your, on your computer. Um, what seems to happen when you give people in those different conditions, those different tasks, is that when you're asked to sort the facts into folders, what you end up remembering often is not the fact. You might remember something about ostriches and eyes being bigger than their brains or something. You might remember something about ostriches, and you go, oh, yeah, that's in the nature folder. <laughs> so what might be happening when we say things like, I'll just Google that, is we're outsourcing it intentionally, but we're, we're keeping sort of the label. We're keeping this ostrich fact, even though I don't need to remember the details of the ostrich fact, are stored here. And so we might be better at remembering where things are stored rather than the information itself. And so I think that is probably, again, it's early days and there isn't much research on it. But as far as I've been seeing, that seems to be what's, what's going on, is that we are, in fact, moving the, the verbatim memory, so the exact memories of things like facts, into uh, these folders, into yeah, outsourcing. Is it making memory worse? Is it making memory worse? It's changing it. I think that um, I think it has huge implications for things like how we teach our kids. I think that uh, all of us now probably are guilty of saying, don't really need to remember that phone number, that name, that location, that address. I mean, when's the last time you remembered an address of a restaurant? Uh, you just you just Google it, um, and so. I think it can make us feel lazy, which I think might be, might be a bad thing, but I think it has a, the opportunity for us to revolutionize how we teach because we no longer need to remember all the details, which frees up an, a tremendous amount of time for things like learning how to critically appraise information, critical thinking, concepts, ideas, learning how things fit together rather than the bits themselves. So I think, I think there's lots of potential. I think we shouldn't be scared of technological change. I mean... It, it's happening, uh, and as long as we use it for its advantages and outsource it, I think it can free up a lot of space. Just on the same issue, are there any examples of collective false memories which have been influenced by, by, by media? Uh, yeah. I know there's a yes, but I'd like to know. 
<laughs> there are so fake news. Uh, there, there's lots of uh, questions around what's called misinformation. So within the false memory literature, what we now call fake news would be an, a version of misinformation, information that's wrong. Uh, and when you tell people misinformation, it's relatively easy to get them to later, if you ask them about that information, again, not remember where it was from, but remember the information itself. So if you're the kind of person, which is probably most of you, because most people do this, scanning headlines of things. All you take, you don't actually read the article maybe, you just scan the headline. Maybe later on when someone brings up, oh, that thing that Trump did yesterday, there's always something that Trump did yesterday, um, you go, oh yeah, I read about that on, I can't remember, probably The Guardian, probably CNN. Maybe it wasn't though. Maybe it was something totally different and it was actually fake news. Um, so, so we're maybe less cautious than we should be at remembering where things are from, also because we don't engage with stuff as much. Uh, in terms of preventing false memories, I think the amount of photos we take and things like Twitter recording stuff more, so the propensity for us to record our lives, I think that is tremendously powerful. And I think if you're, let's say something really important in your life happens, positive or negative, you want to remember that wonderful vacation or you want to remember the crime you just saw, write it down, record as much as possible immediately because your record is in addition then to your brain and your brain's going to start changing and hopefully this thing you've recorded is not. I know there are students in the audience so I have to say writing it down is a really good idea. <laughs> <laughs> but merely recording it seems not to be. So when you test people who've been around art galleries or been on holidays and, and they've taken photographs or videos anywhere, everywhere, they actually perform less well on memory tests afterwards. And I, I think it's because they've been attending to what they're doing rather than attending to what they're seeing. That's right, and there's yeah. research to, to, yeah. to corroborate that for sure. Yeah. Um, but in terms of independent evidence, I think it's... it's the microphone's useful. there. It'll come to you soon. Yeah, hi. Hi. Uh, first of all, I was really fascinated by what you both said, so I'm always going to remember it. And also, <laughs> I have two Everything questions. clever was said by the man called Jennifer in blue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have two questions. Um, recently, a doctor asked me um, what I used to do as a hobby before I was 13, and I have absolutely no idea. And they said, well, is it possible you suffer some sort of trauma and then I said I have no idea so is it possible that you could have suffered a trauma and then forgotten some old memories as well and forgotten the trauma um I, I I can I can't actually see you oh there you are oh hi hi I think um certainly with the the people I work with um I would say that it's really hard to forget trauma in fact um we want to forget trauma but it tends to be something we over remember um, so in extreme circumstances, there may be cases where, where pieces of memory are missing. And I've certainly worked with people who, um, you know, have had rehypnol date rape and so actually have no memory, but they just wake up and they, you know, they start to piece things together from there, but they have no memory of what actually happened. Um, and they're unlikely to ever recover a memory from that situation. And there are situations where we might lose consciousness um, if we're in a bad traffic accident or some other kind of accident and we won't have memory of what happened. Um, but usually with trauma, we unfortunately over-remember it and, um, and it usually affects our lives in some kind of way. So is it possible I just have a bad memory? If you could, um, so, but your question was whether or not you could have had a trauma and not remember it? Yeah. I think it's unlikely you would have had a trauma and not remember. It's more likely you'd, you'd remember whatever trauma you had. And if you don't remember trauma you're probably one of the lucky ones who hasn't had one. Yeah. And 
while we're at this topic, I agree with everything you just said. Uh, I also think that we need to be incredibly careful when people suggest to us that we may have been traumatized when we don't remember that ourselves. Um, the problem with suggesting to people that they experience, as you've learned now, emotional events that didn't actually happen is that people can start to think that they did. Um, and if that person who you're talking to doesn't have evidence that this is true, uh, be very, very careful going down that path because you might start feeling like you're recovering stuff when really what you're doing is fabricating unintentionally. Oh, no, my other question is, why do we forget dreams so quickly? <laughs> uh. <laughs> we don't really know. Uh, well, you're not really supposed to remember your dreams, right? Uh, the dreams, possibly, we don't know very much about dreams. We don't really do research yeah. on dreams. Yeah, you're, we you're, do too. You're, you're, the dreams that you do remember are usually when you've woke up in, in REM sleep, because yeah. that's light sleep. And, uh, and, and when, you, when you wake up in, in REM sleep, you're in a kind of a floating state of consciousness. The parts of the brain that are activated, that are reactivating those pseudo memories and, uh, uh, and connecting with other parts of the brain, are not really operating with the same network as a, as, as a normal memory. And that's why they, they both do two things. They, they, they disappear so quickly, or we embellish them and create false dream memories. And mm -hmm. there are some dream researchers who argue that most of our dream memories are actually false dream memories because we remember so little of them at all that we have to hook them onto things that we, you know, we have that blue sky moment. Mm. Yeah. Uh, there's a question next, just up and behind you. Then the next question is over here, the guy in blue's had, and then, and then the next one will be here. There's people up there, we get a microphone Hi. here? <laughs> Hi, can, okay, can you hear me? Um, first of all, great Hi. to see Canadians doing good things in the UK. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's strange at all. Um, so I was wondering if you could actually both talk a little bit about how authority affects your studies and how people articulate their memories to different people or in different manners. So if you're telling it to an, uh, a prosecutor who's cross-examining you in court, or if you're talking to somebody who has an authority in the sense that they are trying to help you cope with traumatic memories, um, how does that affect creation of memories or alteration of memories versus, say, writing it down and keeping it to yourself or not actually expressing it to anybody, but believing internally that you may have a memory. How do you, how do you cope with that in your studies? Uh, well, in our studies, so in yours probably more, because trauma. Do you want to start? Or? No, I think it's probably more in yours, because... <laughs> <laughs> you take it. I'll take that. Uh, there's actually someone who'd be really well-suited for this, Jonathan Schooler, uh, having to do something about verbal overshadowing. This is Jonathan Schooler. Um, he... <laughs> do you want to explain your own research? Uh, I also do uh, research on mind wandering and was uh, mind wandering a little bit when that. Question. Fair. Um, <laughs> Jonathan essentially says the mere act of writing down or telling, so verbalizing it's called, verbalizing a memory, so explaining what happened, writing it down, telling it to a prosecutor, um, telling it to your family members, that act of putting your memories into words actually can overwrite. Am I, is this right? can overwrite the original memory so that what you're act doing next time you think about that memory is you're accessing your description. <clears throat> now, in, in some ways, memories in general are, if you will, sort of copies of copies because what you're doing pretty much every time you activate a memory is you have the potential to shift it around a bit and then you put it back down. And then what happens when you activate it the next time is you activate the last version 
And so you can see how this can, and here this is wonderful, which you might find equally offensive, this game called Chinese Whispers, which we just call Telephone, reasonably, um, but uh, where you tell the story, right, and it can be the same at the end or it can be very different. Uh, so the same thing happens with verbalizing accounts, is that that actually, the way you verbalize and the questions you're asked, that's another big part of this, Was what people ask you about the memory will affect how well you remember that piece of it. Was part of your question relating to the status of the people you're giving the information to? So there is some research, oh, sorry, yeah. um, uh, <laughs> and there's an interesting, uh, an interesting sex difference in, in this research. So if, if somebody of the best example I'll give you is is when you ask students how well they did in exams, and and the, the data are that if you ask a group of male students how well you did in the exam, they say I did all right, and uh, and if a junior lecturer asks them, they'll say, I did all right. If a peer asks them, they'll say, I did all right. If a professor asks them, they'll say, I did all right. What seems to happen uh, when you ask female students is that if a peer asks them, they'll say they didn't do very well. If a junior lecturer asks them, they'll say they did rather well. And if a professor asks them, they say they think they did really well. Um, <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> So I, I now know that even my female students lie to me. Um, uh, but, but the point is, is that there is, there is definitely going to be an effect, and I'm sure you've seen this in criminal cases, as an effect of the status and the power relationship of the perceived or, or otherwise that, that, that of the person you're giving the information oh, to. Certainly, certainly. We've got a question you've been, been waiting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to, to avoid confusion, this is a question for Dr. Wilde. Um, what happens, well, how, does, how would updating work if there's still significant uh, suffering in the, present, in the present? Like, for example, the loved one didn't actually die but uh, was uh, badly maimed and is still significantly suffering. Yeah. So, um, again, so the, the example I gave in the talk um, was something that we could talk for a long time about. Um, you know, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy does work and does help people who have been through traumatic bereavement. And of course, you know, I've had several um, clients who have been very maimed by uh, particular trauma and go on to recover. And what the treatment does um, is at some point, and not immediately because it would be completely inappropriate, is to, to work with rebuilding your life. And you, you need to shift the focus at some point from, uh, what has been lost and what I'm grieving to what has not been lost and what can I still do. Um, so the immediate client that springs to mind is somebody I've written about and um, uh, she's, she's in one of um, the books that I've contributed to. Um, and she, she went to the dentist one day and she, got a, um, she was meant to be given antibiotics. And this is actually something when I, when I teach um, on PTSD that I'm, I mentioned in Canada, we're actually really good at giving people with heart murmurs antibiotics when they have dental work. And for whatever reason, it didn't happen on this day. She didn't get her antibiotics. Um, and to make a long story short, she ended up in hospital. Um, there were various, um, they were short-staffed at this particular hospital. She ended up having both her legs amputated and losing her hearing. And she went on to develop post-traumatic stress and uh, major depression. And then she saw me for treatment. And of course we were, and, and because she was on so much medication in hospital for 
um, heart surgery and um, you know, having to have her legs amputated, she, she was on particular medication. This ties into somebody else's question about um, memory. But it distorted her perception at the time, so she thought she was being tortured by, by the nursing staff. So her trauma really went on for six months because her whole experience in the hospital was horrific, because, also because of the medication she was on, not least to say what she'd gone through. But at some point in therapy, we started focusing on what could she still do? and what hasn't been lost, and how can she rebuild her life? And you know, what was the meaning of the loss to her? And, you know, and it, was, it was incredibly potent, and I, I don't want to go in, into too much detail, because I could talk about it for ages, but we had to update the meaning. So one of her meanings was, I feel defective and different, I'm no longer a woman. Well, in what ways are you similar to other women? Well, I still have similar values. Um, I still, um, you know, can go to college and I can still have achievements and I, and I care about other people and I still have similar values to other people. So in that way, I'm more alike than different. And we start to focus on rebuilding her life, what she can do, and in what way she's more similar than different to update the meaning. So of course, trauma happens and some of our worst fears do happen, but it is possible to overcome them within a period of about 12 weeks, which is what our therapy is, if we can start to shift the focus and shift the meaning and update. So all of this new information of what she can do today got linked to her trauma memory in the hospital. So you can see it's a very different memory to when she first arrived and her memory was having her legs amputated. And now she's with, uh, attached to her memory useful information. I'm walking with two prosthetic legs. I've started a college course. I'm more similar to women than to then different to other women, and all of that gets linked to her trauma, and that's what she recalls when she starts to tell her story of her trauma. I hope that answers the question. Question at the front here. Could you take the microphone upstairs? We've got loads of really high IQ people up there. <laughs> that's how the seating is arranged. <laughs> and the questions that will come from there will just be devastating. For Julia, the, qu the question I have is, um, you were talking about sort of false memories and, and the like. What, what do you hope your, in the long term, your work will do for the legal system, given that judges are subjective in their opinion, and we have false memories of, of events? It's a good question. Uh, so when I set out actually and wrote the book, my goal was for more people to know that false memories exist. Step one. Because you as a witness, you as a, an alleged, as a defendant, as someone who's been accused of a crime, you as a police officer, potentially, I don't know, um, you need to know that this is a thing that your memory can do and that other people's memories can do because information is power in this case. Um, I do actually train, so I was at the Old Bailey recently training um, criminal barristers. I train people who, tomorrow I'm training civil lawyers. I have trained judges before. There is a, a desire both in this country and in Germany where I also work to learn about how these processes work and where we need to be careful because I think... Um, what we need to be moving, and in some ways it's, a, it's an impossible situation because our whole justice system is built on this idea that memories as evidence can be reliable. And they can be reliable, but it's really difficult to know when they're not. And so what you have to do is you need to look for red flags. How did this memory come about? How did this police officer ask questions? And in many ways, what we need to do is be preventative, be proactive, because once a false memory is there, only the person themselves knows if they're lying or if it's a false memory or a memory to them. And you can't look at the memory. Like my Aunt Ilza, you'd never know that this didn't happen if you didn't happen to know my mom and the actual situation and the evidence there. Um, and then in, in the Netherlands, there's this, this saying which is problematic but meaningful, which is one witness is no witness. 
the idea that one person's memory, especially when it's not with any kind of other evidence, is insufficient to put someone beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, the problem with that, as I'm sure you're thinking right now, is that lots of crimes happen behind closed doors, where it's my word against, let's say his word. Um, and in those situations, you still have to rely on that. But what you need to be really be focused on is trying to get that memory down, trying to look for contemporaneous evidence, and really looking for um, yeah, extra evidence to support that that actually happened. But I think the field has already justified itself because of what it grew out of when Liz Loftus started. Yeah. yeah. Do you want I to mean, say just a minute about how, where it came from, the whole false memory? Elizabeth field? Loftus. So Elizabeth Loftus is my hero. Um, and she was doing work. She's been doing work for, for decades. But she does work. She started doing work on these misinformation effects of changing little bits of things like saying, how do you ask a question? If you ask people whether they... The, the cars crashed into each other when you, they saw an accident, or whether they smashed into each other, or they drove into each other, you get things like different levels of glass that are reported. So people will start just inventing things that weren't there based on the adjectives you used upstairs, in asking yes. your question. So small changes in question can make a big difference. In Loftus's work in particular, she, that, that grew into part of what was called the memory wars debate. Now, the memory wars were... Uh, a, a, there were questions around things, uh, if you've maybe heard of the satanic panic. Um, people were accusing, sometimes children, sometimes adults, were accusing uh, often entire schools, entire communities, of absolutely horrific satanic crimes. Now, the problem with these crimes is that the way that they were elicited, the way that the, the memories of these events were elicited were incredibly leading. And they were using a lot of techniques that are now known to create false memories. And the evidence otherwise was lacking. And to this day, um, I don't think any satanic panic claim has ever been, has ever been uh, substantiated. So she was talking at a time when there were lots of questions around repressed memories, around pulling out these long-lost memories allegedly with highly leading and suggestive memory techniques, as we now know. But at the time, therapists thought that they were uncovering all these real memories. Finally, they could explain why that person had anxiety, that person had depression, that person was suffering from X, Y, or Z, because we've uncovered this memory. Probably what was happening instead, Loftus argued, some of those were being implanted instead, and that, we, and that really led to this big storm around how do we know that a memory is implanted or how do we know that it's real? Let's take two or three from, from upstairs. Who's got the microphone upstairs? Go ahead. Hi. Um, two questions. One is that I have a friend who's suffering from PTSD and as someone who is not an expert, how do you engage with someone who is going through mm -hmm. that kind of trauma in the moment? And two is, have you found that tools like hypnotherapy are helpful for helping to, to process and move forward with these kinds of experiences. Okay, so um, I can answer both of them, and then Julie, Julia can also come in on the second one. So if your friend has post-traumatic stress, and, and it sounds like what you might be worried about is the dissociative um, aspect of it, so if they're going into a flashback when you're out and about and really feeling like they're reliving the trauma, um, then the best thing to do is to bring their attention back immediately. The fastest way to do that is with a strong smell like peppermint or lavender or with a toxically sour sweet and you just pop it in their mouth and it's so disgusting that they can't focus on anything else. It really does come down to attention and the more their attention is in the here and now, <laughs> the less they'll be back at their trauma and then you can have a conversation with them about getting them some treatment. Um, and if they live in England, they'll have access to the Improving Access to Psychological Therapies program, and they should be able to get an assessment within two weeks and get an evidence-based treatment for post-traumatic stress. 
Now, the other question was on hypnosis and whether or not that might be helpful. Um, I don't practice hypnosis um, with my clients because um, the trauma-focused CBT that I, I practice is, is quite helpful. About 85% of my patients will fully recover. So I haven't had to um, use hypnosis. Um, and I certainly have people relive the trauma. I mean, and it's a difficult therapy, um, but not in a hypnotic kind of way. It's very much, they're very much in the room with their eyes closed, reliving what happened and talking me through it. Um, so Julia might want to take hypnosis in relation to memory outside of trauma. I always feel like There's hypnosis. a great sentence in Julia's book, which is hypnosis, not a thing. <laughs> so <laughs> while you're on that fence. <laughs> I, I always consider this a bit of a trap, the hypnosis question. Um, yeah, I, I do start that chat part of the chapter saying hypnosis is not a thing. Um, but then I just, I argue, I spend the next half chapter arguing against myself. Uh, hypnosis is often, I'm often asked in, in regard to implanting memories, um, do you put people under hypnosis? And just no, uh, you don't have to do that, it's much easier than that. Then the next question <laughs> is, well, what is hypnosis and can it help me uncover memories that are real? My answer to that is, hypnosis works for some people. What exactly it is, even the hypnosis society doesn't agree on. There's no accepted universal definition of what hypnosis actually is. Now, if you take a very, very, very basic definition and say, essentially, it's a relaxation exercise, fine. And in that sense, it's evidence-based. It can help with pain. It can help with a number of different medically related, and maybe not memory really, but it can help with stress relief at the very least. Um, to use it to access allegedly or believed to be lost memories, don't do it. Why? Because you just don't know. And the problem with hypnosis is it intentionally sets you, if you're even able to be hypnotized, which most of you aren't, by the way, uh, it puts you into a very complacent state. The whole point of, of, of hypnosis, the reason why you can make people act like chickens, uh, is because they're open to suggestibility. They're compliant. They're doing what you tell them. And so if at that point someone suggests to you, think about a memory, what could have caused this trauma, you're, you're pretty quick at imagining things, maybe as they didn't actually happen. Again, and the problem is, as soon as you introduce these kinds of wild cards, later on, you just don't know if it was because the technique, which is problematic, which is imagination-based, or if it's actually a real memory. Whereas if you'd just gone to someone who didn't do that, you would have fewer questions about that. Let's take a couple more from upstairs, and then go one, two, three. Hi there, I think I've got the microphone, so I'll ask a quick question. Um, does information from different senses create memories of different valences. Um, so it's trauma, are triggers in traum traumatic experiences usually visual and auditory, or is it, are they also um, based on smell and taste, and how does that, how does that work? I know that voice. Oh, great. <laughs> great question. <laughs> yeah, so um, during trauma, all of that gets encoded, um, very uh, over-encoded, and um, particularly if we're losing consciousness. Um, and when we're losing consciousness, before we're completely unconscious, we're still, the brain is still encoding the sights, the smells, the sounds. And so the sights, the, the sounds, and the smells, and the feelings in the body can be enough to bring back a memory of the trauma, that someone still has a memory of the trauma. But being in a similar situation will bring that um, to mind. And I can think of one patient, which is a really good example, and she was driving her car near Oxford, and um, she was going the speed limit, someone was behind her and wanted to overtake her, and then she saw, she sped up a little bit, 
and then he got quite close behind her, and then she saw these four little ducks waddling across the road, and she slammed on her brakes, and he slammed into the back of her, and she lost consciousness, but it was, she wasn't expecting the trauma, she wasn't expecting it to happen, but before she lost consciousness, all of the sights and the sounds and the smells um, got encoded really strongly, and when I took her for a drive, because I was trying to reactivate her trauma memory, um, we got close to where her trauma happened, and she had an immediate flashback, but she couldn't actually identify that part of the road where it had happened. But it was the sensation of being in the car, hearing cars on the road that were very similar. It was a, very, it was a matching cue. I talked about matching cues in the talk. It was a matching cue that was enough to trigger her trauma memory, and she was terrified at the time and right back there at the time of the trauma. Thanks a lot. Have we got another one upstairs before we come back down here again? We have. Hello. Oh, hi. Um, so bright. Cool. Uh, firstly, I enjoyed the talks, so thank you. Um, during the talks, you guys kept saying things um, like that memory is distributed um, and things like overriding parts of memory or whatnot. And I'm wondering whether or not this is some kind of useful language to describe experimental observations or whether there's actually an understanding of the physical processes uh, and whether we actually can... Yeah, I think I've read. Yeah, we're good. That's my question. <laughs> Overwriting and what was the other uh, term? That memory is distributed. Distributed. Yeah. They're very like. Um, uh, it's it's much more than just a language. These are not these are not really just metaphors. These are I, th I think quite well tied to the uh, to the mechanisms of memory that that we we do understand. So that me uh, if you try and 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 induce a memory too soon after a, a, another memory, then uh, there are two, the danger is, is that you will overwrite the, the previous one. Uh, and that's, that, that's a very old, 100-year-old finding of spaced learning is better than mass practice. I guess my um, question is more, so we can see that the memory is overwritten because of the behavior of this person, right? When you ask them a question, they're going to remember something different. But I'm curious whether or not we can actually understand via some kind of neural imaging, like an actual... Uh, physical process that is rewriting? M more than, I think, the optogenetics yeah. example from your book. Yeah, optogenetics. Um, there's, there's lots of uh, physiological neuro, neuroimaging research on this. Um, there's some really fascinating research on, on mice right now, which you may have heard of, uh, which involves implanting false memories and deleting memories in mice. So what you do is you actually attach um, lights. So it's called optogenetics. It's where you manipulate the genetics of the, the brain so to make it responsive to what you're about to do to it. Then you cut open the mice. This is why we don't do this in humans very much. Uh, you cut open the skulls of the mice. Uh, you put sensors on specific parts of the brain to monitor when it goes into a room, for example, where you know it's going to get shocked. It goes into the room. You see exactly the cells that are active when it gets shocked. It goes to sleep. While it's asleep, you go back in there and activate with light those bits, and you can get rid of them. You can delete them at this point. In other words, cut the connections. You're talking about the network. Cut the connections between those particular neurons, so physically cut them with light. Uh, or you can put things in. So once you know what this fear memory looks like, you can also add fear to memories. So that mice start to think that they, a room that they walked into that was neutral actually is fearful. They shouldn't go there. So there is some very physical stuff happening. There's also some stuff happening with, with sea slugs, uh, which, because they're very quickly growing, um, growing, growing neurons, and so you can observe how they literally branch out and seek other neurons, and uh, it's, it's a much more physical process. But yeah, it, it is a literal network of cells, uh, not just a, a figurative network. Yep. 
Question down here. Hello. Hi. Uh, you talked about memory as in recalling instances or uh, events, but how is it when it comes to concepts and understanding? So uh, I'm a student, so if I try to understand something, I actually try to re-explain it to some of my friends, and that re-articulation or rephrasing of that concept, I believe that makes me understand it better. Uh, how, is that linked to memory, or how is that conceptual understanding is different than that? Who wants to take it? I missed that because I was looking at... Oh, um, sorry. It's whether a concept um, that you're recalling um, links to memory, and are you activating your memory? Yes. Yes. Um, yes, I mean, um, so I... Yes, and, and it touches on what Julia was talking about. Uh, it's something that we, we know in the field as reconsolidation theory to some degree. I mean, I'm thinking more, I guess, in terms of trauma memories and when we reactivate a memory, um, what we recall is what gets relet laid down, which is what Julia was talking about. So I'm thinking it's similar with concept. When you're explaining a concept, it's a similar mechanism that's happening. You're recalling a concept, you're remembering your explanation of the concept, and you're consolidating that learning. And, and the more that you're recalling it and explaining it, the stronger so your own learning kind of, uh, is of it, and, and the more you're able someone, to explain yeah, it uh, in future. This guy in the that's how I would understand it. Yeah, memories of facts and memories of, of experiences are different. Uh, we do encode them differently, but also if you use the way that we remember experiences to remember facts, it can actually help. So if you think, look at people who are memory champions, for example, or memory grandmasters who go into competitions to show how much they can remember, um, and they're given all these tasks, it's quite crazy. Um, they pretty much all use the exact same strategy, which is picturing things as in weird combinations and trying to flesh out memories. So even numbers, you can picture the number, you need to remember the number three uh, as part of a long series of digits. Instead of just trying to remember three, which is not very sticky, uh, you remember it as a giant number or you attach something to it or three has a meaning for you in maybe three ducks across the road. Um, but bad example. <laughs> but you'll remember it, won't you? Um, and so you have three ducks sitting on this three. So I mean, you, you try to flesh it out because the bigger a network you create, the easier it is to find later. Okay, so we're in... We're in the last 15 minutes and still nobody has insisted that they remember themselves being in a pram or being, being two-year-olds. I'm disappointed in you. Uh, you like the courage that you had when your eyes were closed. We've got one question here and then another one here and then one at the back. Hi. Sorry, was it me or not? Yes. Yes? Fantastic. Hi. Thank you for a, a really, really great talk. Um, we've touched on a few little things like... Um, rewriting or overwriting memories and also access to authentic information and almost, in a sense, the, the beginnings of the redundance of, of certain kinds of memory. Um, I just wanted to, uh, to ask a question about that. I think we all remember a certain professor we had when we were studying who just seemed to have endless dates, names, facts and figures at their fingertips and they'd always give the frustrating answer when you, when you ask them, how do you do that? they'll say, well, I knew it when I was your age, or, oh, I just read books. I'd, I've just always known it. I mean, um, first part of the question, I suppose, is um, are some people more um, able to simply remember dry facts, figures, information than others? Um, the other thing is, uh, are we actually able to train ourselves to remember, or is that a myth? 
Can I take that? Sure. They're not dry facts to us. Um, they're part of a, a narrative. They're part of a, a story that we're trying to tell about the subject that we're interested in, whether it be the brain or, or history or, or whatever. So you call them dry facts, but we don't sit there and, 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 and learn things. We think that connects with this part of the story and that connects with that part of the story. And I think that's... Uh, and uh, we see it with students all the time, that they, they will try and learn things in isolation. It's when you know the narrative. I guess that's the answer to, partly to the question of when most of you went to university, Google didn't exist, you had to go because that's where knowledge was. Our challenge now is what do we teach people that they can't look up on Google and what we teach them are, are the stories and, and, and how to think through those, those stories. So we try and... We try and um, um, <laughs> I was going to say moisten those facts, and now I have. Um. <laughs> uh, as a student, I mean, I, I'm really bad. I continue to be very bad with names. Uh, but I'm decent with names about for, for people in my field, partly because I go to conferences. So they're real people who have other things oh. going for them. Uh, like, they look like that, and they, I mean, they, 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 there's more to it. Again, it's just a name doesn't mean anything. Uh, rhyming it, adding some, adding anything you can to it, especially something meaningful, that's what makes it a, a story in itself. It, it has uh, much more context, more texture, if you will. But yes, we are baseline cleverer and we can remember <laughs> most things. <laughs> question in the middle there. Hello, um, this is a trauma therapy question. Do you think, so let's say you have a car crash yeah, and you associate a red brake light with an intense emotional experience and then you get your client to consciously recall that red brake light in some kind of conscious therapy where they think about that red brake light over and over. Do you think it's possible that the efficacy of the therapy actually comes from just recalling that red brake light and associating it with an emotionally neutral situation? And that link gradually just overshadows the link between the red brake light and an emotionally intense situation. So actually it's a subconscious healing that's taking place rather than the conscious therapy that you're focusing on? Um, so I got most of that. What was, <laughs> was that the, what was the example, red kite? Just let's say the last thing, the most emotive memory you have consciously yeah. of this car crash is a light. Right. And then okay. that light is what triggers you yes. to feel that emotion over again and relive it. Mm -hmm. But do you think in therapy what you're actually doing is recalling that red brake light and linking that, laying down links between that and not feeling that emotional intensity and feeling calm. And that subconscious linking is actually what heals you. Um, I think it's part of it. I, I don't think it's everything because the, when we go through a traumatic event, it usually has a significant meaning for us. And so we're updating the meaning. Certainly reliving trauma actually... Um, can cause people to habituate their anxiety. They feel a lot less anxious. They may feel less anxious when they're recalling it with you in a room. It's very different to when they suffered it at the time. So certainly that can be helpful. But I, I think what is actually going on is that new information is being linked to that memory. And you know, for many people, just recalling what they went through is enough for them to realize that they survived. And they don't necessarily need a therapist to actually implant new and useful information into that trauma memory because they will just recognize that it's a red brake light, it's, um, it happened in the past, I survived and I'm safe, and that's enough for it to be less traumatic. Um, so you, I think partly, yes. Do you think that yes, needs to be conscious? A, pardon me? Does that need to be conscious thought or can that happen on a subconscious level where you just link those sensory visual memories 
to an emotionally calm state that no longer carries that trauma to it. And by repetitively doing that, that outshadows the traumatic single event. Well, I think this is what MDMA therapy is all about for PTSD, which isn't something I'm a huge fan of. Um, but what's happening is people are recalling the trauma in a completely different state and feeling much more relaxed when they do recall it, which teaches them that they can recall it without re-suffering everything that they felt at the time. But I think what's actually happening for people who recover from post-traumatic stress in the kind of therapy that I would be giving people is that they are linking new information and it's the new information that is very conscious and is very consciously going into a memory and that new information is what makes them feel calm. Okay, we're in the last six minutes. So MDMA we're to, therapy? We're going to have to make contradict. How would one uh, find Go ahead. <laughs> For a friend. We're going to have to contradict Aldous Huxley and, and, and make brevity the soul of truth. So. Um, um, really good short questions, I, I think so, because I've promised three or four people that they'll get their questions in. Yeah, I'd just like to know what you Where's think between memory and identity. That's all. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Nice small question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did write a whole book about that. Um, memory and identity, I think that there is, I, I think that when we think about our lives, we often think about moments. When we think about who we are, we think about moments in our lives. The people we love, we think of, and that's like a moment often, sort of, oh, when I was sitting on dad's lap, or oh, the last time I saw my, the face of the person I love. Uh, we think about our achievements, which in some ways are also often memories, or a moment you walked on stage to get your degree, for example. Um, I think that with things like dementia, what we see, um, and why it scares us to some extent, is because we feel like the person is being lost, not just the memories, which suggests to me, again, that memories probably do play a significant role in not just our own ident identity, but also in how other people see our identity. Um, so, I mean, it's a very big question. Uh, I think that there's a freedom, so in, with false memory stuff, I actually, I am, my father passed away last year and I was the first responder, speaking of trauma memories, uh, but I, it's really weird having things like that happen when you're, a memory researcher, because you deal with it quite differently, I think. It's a bit more, the, it's a bit of a looser. Well, because one thing that happens when someone dies is you start sharing all these memories. And you realize after someone dies, I mean, that's all you have left, right? And so what you do is you go over and over and over them. And, and you're trying to almost make the person rematerialize because it's like, this is what we have. And you, you can see when you're a memory scientist and you're that person that the family really dislikes after a while. You're like, that didn't happen that way. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, we, we all wish, I think, to be remembered as our eulogies, so wonderful versions of ourselves, the best versions of ourselves, but sometimes those aren't very close to reality. Um, and it's weird to think that these bits can, can change. And so I think even posthumously, identities and memory are linked because what is a person and, and how are we remembering this person? Is that changing or is it a tapestry of all our memories together that's making this, this thing, this person who nev never really existed? Um, so I think that there's, there's, a, oh, there's a lot of things to say about identity and memory. I think the penultimate question. Uh, a bit of a silly one, but why am I really good at remembering people's birthdays when I can barely remember their first names? That's... <laughs> Mine's the 30th of December, I don't care what you call me. <laughs> Send you an email. <laughs> it's probably
probably important to you. Um, I, I think that, I mean, attention is a big part of memory. So if you're paying attention when someone says their birthday, maybe you're picturing their birthday, making it a bigger memory. Or let's have it out. Maybe you're just a bit weird. <laughs> I mean, we don't have to have a scientific explanation for everything, do we? Yeah. Um, last question. Uh, uh, we need a microphone for the last question. Last question is always Everybody's really, good at different things, really insightful and, uh, and brings it all together. <laughs> No pressure. <laughs> I was interested in your auntie story. And what I wanted to say, she, she has a fabulous memory for what your mum told her. Do you, <laughs> do you think that because your mum told the story so passionately that that made your aunt feel that she'd actually been there? And the other thing I was going to say, I come from a big family with quite a few older siblings um, when we used to get together, they used to reminisce about what happened in wartime, and obviously there was quite a few traumas. What I never know now is, did I experience that, or is it only because I heard the stories from my older siblings? How can I sort that one out? <laughs> Tricky. Uh, I mean, with my aunt, I think that... Let's start with the first one. Uh, I think that very much it's, she was able to picture being there because my mom told the story so vividly. Um, and maybe even the first time she told the story to her friends. I'm just picturing her. My, my aunt is, is German, and so she always has this tea time kind of thing in German with sandwiches. Uh, not like here. Anyway, uh, I'm just picturing her talking like, to her friends, saying, oh, this thing happened. And then maybe the next time saying, this thing happened to me. Um, and I actually think for her, it is a thing about identity. Because this was a thing, a negative thing, but still a thing that happened to the family. And family is important to her, and she wants to be a part of this family. And she has, let's be honest, a relatively boring life. Um, <laughs> not to judge my auntie. <laughs> but I think it was an exciting thing that we did. And it, I think she doesn't really want to let it go. Because she was a part of this family thing, and now it's part of her identity. Um, so I think it's a, it's a bit of both. In terms of whether you can identify your own memories versus others... Again, just I would be cautious that saying that. I'm not sure if I just heard this or if it's actually my memory. Great. You, you might need to stop there, unfortunately. Um, but looking for evidence, uh, again, figuring out, could I have been there? Could, it have, could I have been part of this uh, is, is the next step if you really need something to, to be verified. Thank you very much. Um, we have to stop there. It's 8.30, uh, and, and they don't do lock-ins at the Royal Institution. Um, <laughs> So I knew I would learn a lot from, from these two tonight, and I think I have. I also feel frustrating that we haven't scratched the surface either. There's so much, to, so much to go at. I'm deeply disappointed in you as an audience for not insisting to Julie that you did remember life in a pram. I, I, the way you ran out of courage was, was, was pitiful, frankly. Um, but uh, thank you for coming and for, for the great questions. And can we thank our two great speakers, please, Julia and Jennifer. <laughs>